Last week we began First Kings and uh, made our way through one chapter. And in that chapter, David is very elderly at this point in time in his life. And his oldest surviving son by the name of Adonijah uh, made a power play, a selfish ambition play to uh, promote himself to be the next king of Israel after David. And uh, uh, God had a little different plan related to that. His father wasn't nearly as dead as he thought he was. David, upon hearing the news, knew that God had declared that Solomon was to be the next king of Israel. And he rose up and kind of took the bull by the horns and uh, didn't delay any longer in, in uh, letting the nation know that Solomon was to be the next king and not only to be the next king, but anointed him king and gave him a, a place, his place upon the throne. And so uh, Adonijah had done this plot against his brother Solomon and uh, uh, it was really kind of a thing that what he did was really worthy of death in the ancient world, this kind of treasonous act. And uh, he pled for the mercy of Solomon, that Solomon wouldn't kill him for what he did. And Solomon said, if you're a good boy, if you prove yourself to be a worthy man, then uh, and just go home, stay out of politics, stay out of trying to take the throne ever again. Just be a good boy and uh, everything will be all right. And Adonijah realized that was more grace than he deserved. And so he did. But he's not through, as we'll see tonight. Now. The days of David grew near that he should die. Now, there's no avoiding that, barring the rapture option, which I'm very open to this evening, and which appears very, very close right now. You have no idea how tempted I am to do a prophecy update right now on the spot. You can't. What is happening? So I don't want to do it, though, and because uh, it may be a Sunday morning or something. So we'll see. But anyway, uh, the days of David drew near that he should die. And so he charged Solomon, his son, saying, so we stop right there before we get into the charge. And so here's his instruction to Solomon uh, immediately before his death. He knows that and you look at it from the son's side and you look at it from the father's side. And here is David. He looks at this young son of his, probably somewhere between 16 and 18 years old and probably closer to 16 years old. And he's now about to become the king of the most important nation in the history of the world, because it would be through the nation of Israel and the Jewish people that God would provide the world with a savior, the person of Jesus himself, and provide us with the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And so here he is, he's this young guy, and he's got all of this out in front of him, and he's realizing that dad isn't going to be around forever. And David realizes the same thing about himself, and he sits there, and he knows he, he has spent decades being a king. His son has spent weeks being a king. David knows Every single thing that is coming Solomon's way. He knows about the trials. He knows about the glory of it. He knows about the betrayals that are going to occur. He knows about all of the hardship, all of the highs, all of the lows. It's all wrapped up in his heart. 
And here is Solomon as he's got his father sitting in front of him with all of this history and all of this knowledge of what it means to be not only a king, but the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. It'll only be topped by Jesus himself, considerably topped. But David was a great, great king. So here is this place. What in the world is David in this place? They only got so much time now. For David to communicate his heart to his son about how to be successful as a king in this very, very important role. And what in the world he's going to say. Does he say to Solomon, we better order out some Chinese food. This is going to take hours. It doesn't take hours. For David to communicate to his son, let me give you the secret of how to be a great king and how to successfully follow me. In God's call upon your life to be the king of Israel. He said, I go the way of all the earth. I'm dying. My time here is short. And therefore, he said, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. So he challenges Solomon to prove himself uh, to be a man. And uh, it's interesting is he, he doesn't say to Solomon, listen, I want you to prove yourself a male. It's a different word that's used here uh, in the Hebrew, but it is a challenge to prove himself a man. Being a male and being a man are two entirely different things. I mean, the one is uh, determined at the point of conception. You can't help but be a male if, if at conception you are uh, a male at that particular uh, point. But David understands that not all males are men. So the question becomes, how in the world is Solomon to prove himself to be a man? Now, our culture has many, many ways that foists itself upon uh, men and young men and, and boys in particular in terms of telling us what it is that makes a man a man. Can we hold our liquor Can we get drunk with the rest of them? How many women can we go to bed with and violate? One of the great things that's put forward today in terms of how to prove yourself to be a man. Can you fight? I mean, can you take a punch? Can you take a beating? Can you dish out a a beating? Can you strut around in in pride and, and... Wear your pants somewhere between the bottom of your rear end and your and your knees. Can you swear like a sailor and all these kind of things? But we look at this and, and we see that David's definition and the means by which we can prove ourselves to be a man. David here's a great he's a man's man. I challenge anyone to put their manhood up against David's manhood. I mean, just courageous like you can't even describe. One tough, tough guy. But a great love for God. A great desire to be faithful to God. So here you've got this great warrior, this great king. How would he define what it is, the way that we can prove ourselves a man And it's so simple, he said, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. That's the hardest thing a man will do 
in life. It is the way to prove a man, to prove that he is a man. To go against the strength of this ungodly, debased, sewer culture that we live in. And to say, I am going to exercise in the power of the Holy Spirit the discipline and the determination to walk contrary to all of that and to walk with God. You're talking about someone who's one in a million, the world today. But that's the definition of a man. Because that's the hardest thing a person will do this side of heaven. Once we get into heaven, it'll be effortless to do that. But this is how a person proves himself to be a man. And again, David, he knew men. He's got, he's got his 300 that were with him. And then they turned into 600. And he's got his 30 mighty men. And he's got a group of six in there. I mean, he knew what tough was like. You know, you, now they can just put it in the movies. It was his real life for 40 years. He said, you want to know what, what a man is? That's what a man is. And it's the same in every age. To keep the charge of the Lord your God. That's, that's what, how you'll prove yourself a man, Solomon, in this world. And then he describes this charge of the Lord your God. To walk in his ways. To keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses in order that you may prosper in all that you do and, and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way and to walk before me in the truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is the way to walk in the call of God upon your life and to walk in it faithfully. He describes the Word of God every single way that you can describe it. Those of you who are parents in the room, put yourself in David's place. You're about to be gathered to your fathers. For us it be to be gathered into heaven. What's the only concern we have for our children? What's the only request we would ask of them when we're gone? Walk with God. Obey his word. And if I can leave this earth and my children around my deathbed were to say, we will commit to do that by the grace of God, then I can enter into eternity in complete peace. It's all that ultimately matters in life. And so this is the request that was made. And it speaks to us of the priorities of David, understanding what is really important in life. And Solomon will reject all of it. And he will attempt to discover manhood and meaning and purpose in life, and money, and sexual conquest, and partying. And education, all the things that are put in front of us today. There's nothing new under the sun. That it would be at the end of his life, a wasted life, that he would declare this is what life is all about. To walk with God and keep his commandments. 
The problem is, is in, you look at Solomon, and to me, if I'm going to encapsulate his life in, in a nutshell, he's a man who had tremendous wisdom, who applied none of it to himself. He, he, had, he had so much knowledge of the things of God. He had knowledge about trees and insects. This, was, this guy's head was just... He knew so much stuff. He had so much wisdom given him by God. And he didn't obey a whit of it till the end of his life. And he wasted his life as a result. And he's not the last one. Think about how many people raised as he was in the church in a godly environment. They head into early adult life and they have mountains of information and wisdom and all that, that their parents have done to, and sacrificed in order to give that child all that they need to be ultimately successful in this life. And that is to be successful in God's calling. And then to watch them take and live as if they know none of it. They can debate. They could be on jeopardy. They could have a column that says the Bible. And they would get all excited because they'd be able to answer every question and impress Alex. But they don't apply it to their own lives. And so their life is a complete waste. Maybe you sit here tonight. You're raised in the church. Great sacrifice your parents poured the things of the Lord into your life. But now you had, you're smarter than everybody. And you're going to find, try and discover that life is found somewhere else than in the uh, relationship with God and within the confines of God, obeying God's word and all of this. And so you head out and you tear in and you get into all of that stuff and all. And then you discover that mom and dad and God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were right all along, and you were wrong. That's a tough way to learn the lesson. But the main thing is that we learn the lesson. And now come back to God. Come back to your heritage and use the remaining years of your life to discover what it is that God has really called you to do and, his, and allow Him the, the blessing that it is to Him as as your heavenly father, as you give your life to the Lord, to be able to bless you in the way that he wants to. And so the importance of it. And so many of us, we come to know the Lord and we come to the end of our rope. We're so full of ourselves and so smart for a time. And then life beats us up and we realize we were, we were at home all the way in the beginning. And home is what we left to go out and get damaged. But home is still there to go to. You know, one of the most interesting things and one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life to me, beyond knowing God and the relationship with God, is to walk in this world and to see in every single life and in every situation, all of it testifies to the veracity or the truthfulness of God's word. It never fails. His word always has the final say. When he says, don't do this because it ends up here, it always ends up there. When he says, do this because it always ends up here, it always ends up there. His word is never proven wrong by any person. And so the key is to be on the right side of those promises and the right side of his word. 
And Solomon chose not to do it. He ended up wasting his life. But thankfully, and I am thankful for it, he came back to the Lord late in his life. But he had done a lot of damage by that time. But it's never too late to come back to the Lord. And so David speaks to him and tells him how to prove himself a man. And then David begins to address a few loose ends related to his uh, reign that needed to be uh, addressed concerning three uh, situations uh, specifically and uh, situations that David had allowed to kind of string on for years. He never uh, addressed them and, and brought them to a, a conclusion. And he was strong enough as a king that he could do that and not deal with like Joab and Shimei and Abiathar and all. But he realized, I'm going to be gone. I've got this young son now going to be king. He's not as strong. He doesn't have the kind of, of a history that I have as a king. And these guys can really uh, create some problems for him and really jeopardize his reign. And so David now steps in and begins to give him uh, instruction related to these things. He said, moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, and he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. In other words, David, we remember as we've gone through the scriptures, these were two generals that David had elevated to become a kind of commander in chief over the armies in Israel and Joab in his um, you know, kind of jealousy and his own power hungry. He cold blooded murdered them. And David had never, you know, really addressed it according to uh, the law of Moses. And so uh, David want, is, is going to tell Solomon now to go ahead and take care of this. He's murdered these two men. And then in ver verse 6, therefore, do according to your wisdom, but, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. And so he needs to be uh, executed. Now, so as he reminds Solomon of this kind of uh, loose end or this open-ended kind of, of situation, he tells him not to allow Joab to die a natural death. He was to be executed as a murderer. The law of Moses required that that would be the case. And if uh, Joab was not executed for his uh, murder or the shedding of innocent blood, then the whole nation of Israel and the household of David would bear responsibility for that blood. It would be upon the nation. And so he didn't, David didn't want the whole nation guilty uh, of the shedding of innocent blood. And so he ordered that, that uh, Joab would be put to death. It's not an act of vengeance on David's part, but it's an act of justice. Deuteronomy chapter 19 Verse 11 said, but if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises up against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies. And then he flees to one of the cities of refuge. Then the elders of this city shall send and bring him from there, deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You shall not pity him. That is the cold blooded murderer. You shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. And so murder was a capital crime and he was to be executed. Then he instructs Solomon concerning 
uh, the sons of Barzillai, uh, the Gileadite. David said, show kindness to them. Let them be among you, uh, among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And you remember when David and his household was forced to flee when Absalom uh, rebelled against him. He had to flee Jerusalem. Uh, Barzillai was a very, very wealthy man. He's a Gentile. And he came with uh, donkeys loaded with food and supplies and water and these kind of things to help them. They fled. They didn't say, hey, you know, uh, uh, bring the power bars or something like that. They fled without any food, without water. They really needed someone to show mercy to them. Barzillai did at a time when it was dangerous to do so. And David then uh, told, uh, spoke to him and said, when he was restored to the kingdom, spoke to him and said, listen, why don't you come back to Jerusalem and your days there he said I don't want to I can't hear I can't taste what am I going to do in Jerusalem let me just go to my hometown but if you want to show my family good he presented one of his sons to David and said why don't you show the good to my sons and evidently as we read a little bit later I believe in the book of Jeremiah that uh, by that Jeremiah's time there was quite a group uh, that family had prospered very much in Israel, but in this period of time, David is basically saying to Solomon, he did me a good deed, and uh, I don't want him to be forgotten when I die, taking care of his families to continue through your reign as well. It just shows the heart. I mean, he's dying, you know, and he's, and he's just taking care of, of uh, you know, things like this and in his heart toward people, his love for people. And then he said, and see, you have uh, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan and I swore to him by the Lord that uh, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man and you know that uh, what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down uh, to the grave with blood. I don't know what David has against gray hair, but um, he mentions it a lot in this chapter, and it's, it's got me a little troubled, uh, candidly. So you remember Shimei, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei came out and was cursing and swearing at him and telling him he was a rogue and a bloodthirsty man and throwing stones at him and his man. And Abishai said, let me take his head off. Let me take his head off. David said, no, let's not do it. And, uh, and so he was rejoicing that David was being overthrown. David ended up not being overthrown, returned to Jerusalem. And when he crossed the Jordan River, there was Shimei saying, listen, do you... Can't you take a joke? I mean, who? And, and he, but he confessed his sin and he asked for forgiveness and all. And David had a lot of things on his plate at that moment in time. And he just extended grace to him and said he wouldn't be executed for his treason. Now, David knew that Shimei still couldn't be trusted and would probably cause problems for Solomon once David was gone. And so essentially he told is telling Solomon here, don't show him any mercy at even just the slightest show of rebellion on the part of this guy toward you and toward your authority. 
I don't trust him and, and uh, do something that allows you to determine his loyalty. And if he shows rebellion or disloyalty, then execute him because he's a danger to you and a treasonous uh, man. And so uh, they, uh, Solomon is going to devise a very, very wise way of, of allowing Shimei to prove his own disloyal heart, as we'll see in just a few minutes. And so David, we're told, rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. That is in the city of Jerusalem. And that period that David reigned over Israel was a total of 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron and uh, uh, over the tribe of tribes of Judah and and Benjamin, and then in Jerusalem over all 12 tribes, the whole land, he reigned for 33 years. And so he's described, it's beautiful there in verse 8, of, uh, of being gathered, or in, in, uh, in verse 10 there, he's described as being gathered to uh, resting with his fathers. And so there's no um, annihilation when a, a believer dies or an Old Testament saint dies. And so he rested with his father. So the question is, who are my fathers? You know, and uh, speaking of the righteous, David went into the good side of Abraham's bosom, as it's described in Luke chapter 16, with Lazarus and the rich man, just like everybody else on the good side, the faith side, uh, awaiting Jesus' coming down to preach the gospel to them and then clearing the place out at the time of his his resurrection. And so uh, David's life comes to an end. And it's interesting in just two verses it's described and and uh, the history of God's people goes on. And so we leave David at this particular point. I just I really, really love this guy. I love him for his victories. I, I love that boy that took those five stones out of that creek bed and went after that giant. I love the man that I see following his adultery with Bathsheba and his arranging of the death of Uriah the Hittite after a year of God's conviction. I love the man that I watch take responsibility for his actions and man up to all of all of that responsibility. And when it would have been easier to run off to some foreign land and, and hide in shame and separate himself from God's people and God's call upon his life, he didn't do it. God's call wasn't over on his life and he continued to be the best man that he could be in fulfilling God's call even after the failure. There's so much to respect in him on his mountaintop experiences in his valleys. And the same thing is true of men and women today. And so David, this wonderful man that teaches us so much, we leave him behind now. And then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now Adonijah, here's the brother that tried to, you know, finagle the kingdom. Son of Haggith, he came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Solomon had told him, now you'll be a good boy, be a worthy man. Don't be trying to be king again, but he's going to try and be the king again. So he comes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said to him, do you come peaceably? How's that for a relationship? You walk up, you want to talk to somebody. Do you come peaceably? <laughs> so it tells us that she's not that trusting of him. And he said peaceably, liar. 
liar. And moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. And then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. I mean, I just got chipped out of this thing. And all Israel, they all had their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's because it was his from the Lord. If you know it's from the Lord, then to try and get it back means you're fighting against God. And how in the world can you hope to succeed in this? So he's, about to, he's, just, he's not thinking well here. It's what selfish ambition will do in our lives. So God gave it to him and now he's going to try and, and fight to get it back. One of the things he's kind of saying is to Bathsheba here, and he's trying to work on a woman a little bit here, and basically saying, well, you kind of know the disappointment. I was this close to being the king of Israel. And then God turned the whole thing around, and your son's now the king. And so uh, maybe you could help me accomplish a certain things in, in order to help me get over this a little bit. little favor that I'm going to ask uh, of you. Now, may, now I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. So she doesn't make that promise, but she says, go ahead and what's your petition? And he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as wife. Remember the electric blanket woman, the young girl that had become his final kind of wife and concubine? And uh, David never knew her sexually, and so here, is, here she is, and she's quite a prize. Remember, we're told that she was very, very beautiful. And uh, so he asks for her hand uh, in, in marriage. And so uh, that, that's the request that he makes. Now, he goes to Bathsheba because Bathsheba possesses two things that he doesn't possess, and that is access to Solomon, and number two, influence with Solomon. Now, this is very, very crafty on his part. He's still trying to get a hold of, of becoming the king of Israel because in the ancient world, a king's harem normally went to his successor. And so Adonijah could claim a greater right to the throne of Israel than Solomon on two counts. Number one, by virtue of being the oldest son of David. And then now with this second kind of qualification, his marriage to his father's virgin concubine and so he is making a play for the the throne again this is the uh, how he's going to do it solomon certainly as we're going to see understands it in the light of the age that it is another attempt upon the throne and so he sends bathsheba now uh, Ab, uh, um, uh, adonijah does w with this request asking that she would do it and bathsheba, bathsheba said very well i will speak uh, for you to the king. And so she goes innocently. She doesn't understand all of this kind of stuff and uh, what, what's really happening there. She just thinks it's a really cute gal. And remember, he's described as being very handsome. And so you've got this handsome guy in love with this beautiful young lady. And so why not do a little, give him a little help here? And so uh, she's as innocent as can be in all of this. And so she therefore went before King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king rose up to meet her. So great respect toward his mother. And uh, he even bowed down to her and then sat down on his throne, had a throne set 
for uh, the king's mother right next to him so they could speak uh, privately uh, with the other people in the room. And so she sat at his right hand and she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. He, ne- he couldn't even dream. He couldn't dream that was there anything that she would ever ask of him that he wouldn't give to her. He's going to get shocked <laughs> on this. And so she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, his wife. He's so cute and she's so cute. What's the harm, you know? And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, because he's my older brother for him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. I mean, why don't you turn the whole kingdom over to them? He recognizes immediately what's going on here That uh, Adonijah has proven himself unworthy, untrustworthy, still a threat to the throne. And so King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, may God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. And remember, when when Solomon spoke to Adonijah and said, you be a good boy, he promised to be a good boy. And Solomon had been very clear that his life hung in the balance based upon that. So Adonijah goes in with both eyes wide open. And so Solomon is just enforcing what he had already warned Adonijah concerning. And now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me, on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And so King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. And to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, tying up these loose ends, he said, you go home to Anathoth, to your own fields, about three miles uh, northeast of, of Jerusalem. For you are deserving of death because he had joined Adonijah, his plot to take over the kingdom. And so it was treasonous. He was he was an officer in David's cabinet. And and so here is here. uh, He uh, does this to David without David's knowledge. And so that was treasonous and it was worthy of death. But Solomon extends grace to Abiathar and he said, but I will not put you to death at this time. Because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father, David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. Abiathar, he made a mistake late in life in joining with Adonijah's plot. But for most of his life, he was very, very loyal to David, had gone through all of the hardship of the uh, of of the early years of of David's uh, reign and all and in the battles and all of this. And so uh, Solomon acknowledged that and allowed him to live. And so Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord. And uh, so he was demoted uh, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. And so with the removal of Abiathar is the fulfillment of a prophecy that God had given uh, to Eli that this uh, priest and this bloodline of his would one day come to an end. And so here it comes to an end, as God said, a hundred years later. God's word always comes to pass. Sometimes we don't want to wait a hundred years on that, but it always comes to pass. 
And then the news came to Joab that all this stuff was going on and he knew that he was on the menu somewhere here because he had also defected to Adonijah and uh, been treasonous, though he had not defected to Absalom. And so Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And as we saw last week, the uh, altar was a place where the sacrifices were offered at the tabernacle, and there were horns, a horn on each of the four corners. If you felt that uh, you were about to be executed for a crime that you were innocent of, you could go in you could go to the altar, grab a hold of the horns, and it was essentially to say, I am innocent of, of, the, of this charge that is worthy of death. Joab's got a big problem, though. He's grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar, and he's absolutely guilty of, uh, of, of sins and transgressions that were worthy of death. And so that whole thing in the law of Moses that allowed a person, an innocent person, to go to the altar, cling to the horns of the altar in order that their case would be carefully examined so that they would not inadvertently be put to death or accidentally be put to death. Here, Joab is trying to apply it to himself. But again, his problem is, is that he's not innocent. He is guilty, guilty of murder. So he goes in. He tries to extend his life in this way. And King Solomon was told. Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and there he is by the altar. And so Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down, execute him uh, for his uh, murder. And so Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord. It's interesting, Benaiah is now kind of a military commander, but he's also uh, a, a priest. Previously, so he's got great, great respect for the tabernacle. So he went to the tabernacle of the Lord and he said to Joab, Thus says the king, Come out. And Joab's, Joab, he knows this whole, he knows what's going to happen. He said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah, again, respect for the things of the Lord, he brought back word to the king saying, thus says Joab, and, uh, and thus he answered me when I told him to come out so I could kill him away from the holy articles. And the king said to him, do as he said, strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab uh, shed. And so the Lord will return his blood on his own head because he struck down two men who were more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. And though my father, David, did not know it, and their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever, but upon David and his descendants and upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. And so he wanted to be free from uh, blood guiltiness, which they would have been. That blood would have gotten on their hand, on the hands of Solomon and the lineage of David if they had uh, ignored uh, the law and, and failed to execute Joab. And so Benaiah went up and struck him and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And so this represents a great grace, really, on the part of Solomon uh, toward Joab, even though he was executed, he allowed him to be buried in his own land. In other words, we would say the dignity of a decent burial uh, because of his long faithful service to the nation of Israel 
in, in general. And the king put Benaiah, uh, so the shifting of power and, and new, new men coming into um, uh, Solomon's cabinet. Uh, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place, uh, Joab's place, over the army. And the king then put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. And so those, um, the dealing of those situations left a couple of vacancies. This is how he filled those vacancies. And then the king sent and he called for Shimei. And, uh, and he said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and don't go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, which is a valley uh, right on the east side of, of Jerusalem, uh, separating it from the wilderness. And uh, you cross that brook Kidron. And the reason he talks about the brook Kidron is that, uh, and this may be more than you want to know, but uh, somebody may want to know. It might be a double jeopardy question someday, and then here you'll be and I'll be innocent of you losing. Well, let's just abandon that whole line of thought uh, entirely. So he was a Benjamite and uh, the tribe of Benjamin had risen up. It was instrumental in its rebellion against David under uh, Absalom. And uh, so here is Shimei. He's a prominent man among that tribe. And so the idea is let's keep him in Jerusalem where I can keep a close eye on him. If he crosses that brook and he heads off to where he was raised, it, it's only going to be no good. And uh, he might be cr- creating an insurrection. And so very wise perimeters that Solomon places uh, upon him in order to for him to reveal his his own heart. And so he's just as honest as can be. You know for certain you violate this. You leave Jerusalem. You'll be put to death and your blood will be on your own head. You're responsible for it. And Shimei recognized that this was very gracious of the king. He said the saying is good because he was he was worthy of death. As my Lord, the king has said, so your servant will do. And so Shimei agreed to uh, this and Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years. He's been a good boy for three years. The two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, king of uh, Gath. And they told Shimei saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. And so Shimei arose. He saddled his donkeys, very, very deliberate here, and he went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and he brought his slaves from Gath. Ah, ah, ah. He left Jerusalem. And what he's doing here is he is showing open public disrespect for the authority of Solomon. That that his slaves and the redeeming of his slaves are more important than obeying the edict of the king. So this is a very serious thing uh, that he's doing here. And he's exposing his own uh, disrespect toward Solomon and toward his reign. So he went and violated uh, the parameters of the agreement, 
went out, got his slaves and brought them back. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And so the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, The word that I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And so the king commanded Benai, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down and he died. And thus the kingdom was established in the, uh, in the hand of Solomon. And so Shimei uh, exposed himself as uh, being a continued threat to Solomon and his reign, the stability uh, of the kingdom and, and the government there uh, in, in Israel. And so he was executed accordingly. Now, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And as a part of this treaty, he married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. And so here we have some events in the early part of Solomon's reign. And he made a treaty uh, with Pharaoh, and that uh, treaty was kind of signed or ratified through uh, marrying uh, his daughter. And uh, this alliance between Israel and uh, Egypt would have been favorable for both of them uh, because Egypt had this alliance with uh, Israel. It would allow uh, Egypt to have access to the trade routes that ran north and south through Israel. The advantage that it gave to Solomon and to Israel was that it meant that they would have peace during his reign, or at least the life of this Pharaoh, uh, peace with their southern neighbor. Now, sometimes we live today and we don't uh, live in any kind of fear uh, of the fact that Mexico is going to attack us and overtake us or Canada is going to do it. We have relatively friendly neighbors on both sides. But in a lots of parts of the world, they think every day about some hostile neighboring nation that's on their border. And uh, it's, it's a considerable problem when that's the case. And so this would allow Solomon not to have to think about the southern border and in that ancient world, uh, one of the best ways of uh, establishing a friendly relationship with a neighboring nation was to make them your in-laws. So you would just marry into their family and then at least for, you figured you would have uh, peace uh, for a generation as a result. And so uh, marriage was a very common and popular way of, of sealing uh, a peace treaty and, and uniting the two nations in marriage. She's brought to Jerusalem. And we're told that after, after Solomon finished several building projects, including his palace and the temple and, and some other buildings, that he prepared a special palace for her. And it appears that she lived in Jerusalem only until that palace was finished and, and, uh, and that he had built for her elsewhere. And then she was moved out. He seemed to have a sense that this 
uh, wasn't that kosher. Sometimes people look and, and they say, what's he doing marrying a, an Egyptian? Technically speaking, uh, the Jews were not forbidden to marry Egyptians because they were not the inhabitants of the promised land that God had said, drive them out, don't marry in with them and, and all of these kind of things. And so he's, he's in the gray area a little bit. It's not the greatest thing in the world. And uh, but uh, uh, he, he realizes it's, you know, it's probably not terrific to have her in Jerusalem. And so he builds a house for her and relocates her. Now, this was uh, the first of Solomon's marriages. Ultimately, he will have 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is a wise man that we're talking about here. There's no control, does he? Now, a lot of these, mar- a lot of these marriages that he had were very. Um, listen, let me just be clear on this. No wife wants more than one husband and no husband wants or needs more than one wife. It's just God's order for this kind of thing. So this is just off the graph insanity, but it's a part of his disobedience to the Lord. This happens over a number of years. And so this was the start of it in this marriage. Meanwhile, the people were told in verse two, they sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord uh, until those days. And so the people were sacrificing on on the high places and um, during the time of Judges, the Israelites, they adopted the Canaanite custom of, of offering sacrifices on the high places, on the hilltops, on the mountaintops, because the Canaanites felt that the closer you were to God in your prayers and in your sacrifices, the more likely he was to hear them and answer your prayers. And so during the period of the Judges, which was a time where the children of Israel were very apostate and disobedient, they had followed the Canaanites in, in in that uh, in that practice. And so what Israel is doing here, they're not worshiping Canaanite gods. They're worshiping the Lord, but they're worshiping, worshiping the Lord in in these various, you know, previously idolatrous uh, locations. And so what they're doing here isn't uh, in strict compliance with the law of Moses, but it's explained for us and kind of excused a little bit for us. Uh, in verse two, on the grounds that there was no official house built for the name of the Lord, no central place to worship the Lord at that time. At that, at this particular time in in uh, Israel's uh, history, uh, Shiloh had been destroyed, which was the place where they worshipped the Lord with a tabernacle that uh, Moses had. Uh, had built at the time of, of the wanderings in the wilderness that had moved to Shiloh and Shiloh was the location where the children of Israel worshiped the Lord. But a hundred years before this, chapter three of first Kings, uh, the Philistines had defeated the children of Israel and they had uh, destroyed what was going on uh, at Shiloh. And so that original tabernacle associated with M- Moses had moved to Gibeon. And then David also built a tabernacle in Jerusalem because we remember that he brought the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem. He's successful the second time. And so there's kind of this disjointed thing that's going on right now. may not be important to everybody, but there, there uh, are people for whom this is an important issue because it's confusing. Why is this going on? 
And, and so there, there's kind of no central place that everybody acknowledges and recognizes that this is the place to worship God and to offer the sacrifices. Now, in the law of Moses, God had spoken to the children of Israel and said that the day would come when he would appoint a city and appoint a place as the place to worship him. And he's talking about the temple that would be built. And so because there was no temple that was built, uh, God is kind of extending grace to them in terms of what they're doing here. Now, later when you get we go through first Kings and especially into second Kings, and we're going to see the children of Israel are worshiping on the mountaintops. Every time the children of Israel are worshiping on the high places following the building of the temple, it is absolutely forbidden. And, and to compound the problem is that the children of Israel were not, when they ultimately became apostate and rebelled against the Lord, they weren't even worshiping the Lord on the high places. They were worshiping Baal and, and the gods of, of the pagans. And so this helps us kind of understand what it is that's going on, why these high places were were being used and why God wasn't upset with Solomon in the verses that follow when he offers a large number of sacrifices on a high place in Gibeon. And so Solomon loved the Lord and uh, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he uh, sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so without, again, a temple, uh, Solomon uh, did no better than the people on this issue. So now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice. Therefore, it was a great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A burnt offering was unique among the offerings of the children of Israel in that that offering was completely consumed on the fire. And so what it came to represent when a man or a woman or a family uh, 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 sacrificed a burnt offering to the Lord, it represented that, uh, Lord, I am giving you my whole life, my whole heart. And, and so when he takes and he offers a thousand burnt offerings on that altar, it really pleased the Lord. It was a very strong communication to the Lord at this time in his reign that, Lord, my life is completely yours. It belongs to you. You can use my life however it is that you want to. And as a result of this expression of worship and surrender at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And so dreams are a way that God communicates. So dreams are a legitimate means of revelation by God. Not all dreams are revelation from God. Some of them are just the byproduct of nachos at 11 o'clock at night. So you've got to discern this a little bit. But Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he preached the sermon, he talked about how in this uh, covenant of grace and in the Holy Spirit that the young men would see vision and the old men would see uh, would uh, dream dreams as revelation uh, from God. And so that's how you know whether you're old or young in the eyes of God in this new covenant. So here he is, though, he's a young guy and he gets a dream from the Lord, supernatural revelation. And in the dream, God said to him, ask, what shall I give you? Now, that's an amazing question. He's probably 18 years old or so, somewhere 18, 20 years old. The whole Shimei thing, three years, all that's gone by. So he's getting older. God comes to him and says, you ask me, what do you want? 
and I'll give it to you. Now, don't shout your answer out. But if God came to you tonight and said, you ask of me and whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you. The fact of the matter is every single one of us would answer that question. It might take us five seconds to come up with our answer or five minutes, but we would come up with an answer. And what we answer to that question and that offer of God is a great revelation of, of our heart and our attitudes and what we consider to be most valuable in life. So if you said, wow, I'd like to have uh, that number one at McDonald's right after the service. I don't want to know that somebody would do that. That's thinking way too small for a child of God. So this was the offer that was made, significant offer by God. And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. He acknowledges the grace of God in his life. He said, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I am a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or to be counted. So he declares himself to be a little child. And he says, and, I, and it's one of my favorite verses about uh, in, from Solomon's whole uh, life. He said at the end of verse 7, I don't know how to go out or to come in. He said, you have made me the king of the most significant nation in the history of the world. And certainly the most significant nation at that time in, in human history on a physical level. And he said, I don't know how to go out and I don't have, know how to come in. And basically what he's saying is, I don't know how to walk into the throne room properly to enter it. I don't know how to exit the throne room properly. Is it three curtsies and a bow? Do I walk in frontwards and then walk out backwards like the English or this whole thing, how they do the whole deal? And so he said, I don't even know how to conduct myself as a king, I don't know how to even walk into the throne room. I don't even know how to sit myself properly on the throne, much less to make decisions on that throne. He said, I don't even know how to play king, much less be king. And I'm king. So he's, he's very humble at this point in his life, and he's very aware of his inadequacy in the, in the natural for uh, fulfilling God's call. And so he said, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, for me to rule your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? He said, give me an understanding heart. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, give me a hearing heart. God gives him an offer. Just talking about how pure he was at the beginning of his reign. What do you want, Solomon? Solomon doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for this. He doesn't ask for that. Or any of this. Jesus is the Lord's going to mention in just a moment here. He just looks and he says, listen, God, if you're going to give me one thing, here's what I want. I want to hear your voice in every decision I make in this role that you've called me to. 
I want you to tell me what I'm supposed to do in every single decision. You give me that wisdom, and then I will do what you tell me to do. What is right, I'll do it. What is wrong, I won't do that. I want you to make the decisions. I'm your servant, and I will simply uh, uphold those decisions. And so this is what he asked for a hearing heart in order to properly judge for the benefit of God's people. And in the speech, this request, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, that is, victory in battle, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Now, what this tells me in verse 11 is that when Jesus, when, when God extended that offer, apparently uh, to other people beyond Solomon or the request that he was just used to hearing people lift up in prayer to him, that th- these were the top three things that were being requested of, of him, long life, riches, victory over their, their enemies. And here is, is uh, 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 Solomon asking for something entirely different. He's asking for wisdom. Now, you know what's amazing about this? It was just just a moment. He said, behold, I've done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. I give you what you asked for so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. I give you the wisdom that you seek. Do you realize that the simplest Christian on the face of this planet or in this room has access to that same wisdom. James chapter 1, the Bible says, if any of us lacks wisdom, all we need to do is to ask God for that wisdom. He won't make fun of us. He won't rebuke us for, for asking for it. He will give us the wisdom that we're, ask, that we're asking for. We have access to that same wisdom in this covenant that we have in Christ. And he said, I have given you what you, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among all the kings in all of your days. And so if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So I give you long life. I give you a promise of victory. I give you wealth. I give you honor. The things that you didn't ask for, I add those things to you because your heart was right. Again, it reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, make that the priority of life. And then all these other things, uh, food and clothing will be added unto you. And so we have the same great blessing and promises in our life as Christians. And then Solomon, he awoke from the dream and indeed it had been a dream and he came to Jerusalem And he stood there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He offered up burnt offerings again to to express his surrender to the Lord, his consecration to the Lord. He offered up also peace offerings 
uh, and made a feast for all of his servants. Now, it, it, in a demonstration of this wisdom that God had uh, bestowed upon him, uh, this next incident is recorded. But I am at an hour and two minutes and 38 seconds, and so I'm going to stop here. And we'll pick it up next week. I just want you to know that I know what time it is up here. Um, and occasionally it means something uh, to me. Let's stand together.